Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the 90s Club Footy Podcast. This week, our special guest is Raiden Tellis from the Hawthorne Football Club. Raiden was picked up by the Hawks in the 1993 AFL National Draft from the Eastern Rangers, then spending 11 seasons in the brown and gold, playing 163 games and kicking 27 goals. In this episode, Raiden talks about that famous incident with Dermot Brereton, being in and out of the side during his early years, how he thrived under coach Peter Schwab, the merger talks with Melbourne, and the people that helped him along his journey. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with Raiden Tallis. Raiden Tallis, thank you for joining me on the 90s Club Footy Podcast. Great to have your company, mate. Uh, thanks for sharing your time. Great to be here, Trent. Thanks for having me, mate. Mate, I'm really interested. Before we get into the footy talk, what's Raiden Tallis doing post-football? What's uh, the career since football been like for, for Raiden Tallis? Yeah, well, I suppose it's been a while now. I think it's it's coming up to nearly 20 years out. Um, I think it was actually a significant year for me because Sean Burgoyne, I think retired at the end of last year. He may have been the last player that I actually played against. So I'm now um, officially that long retired that there's no one in the AFL that I actually played against anymore. So, um, which is uh, unbelievable that he's around that long. But um, post football, mate, I'm, I'm actually currently um, I run my own business, mortgage broking business called Boost Financial Group, but. Um, been doing that for about five years, but I also work part-time for the AFL still, which I've done for 15 years in in actually career transition programs. So I actually look after the first years um, through to players exiting the system after their careers in in uh, employment and education um, areas. So, yeah, I've been doing that for 15 years. And I reckon that's a really important thing because I don't know what it was like back in your day with uh, you know, when you started, obviously, you, you would have had to have worked. It wasn't a full-time caper at that point. But just life after football is so important now because we know that an AFL career might not be 15 years. It might be only one or two years. So to have that stepping block for, for the next thing after football is pretty important. Oh, mate, massively important. Now, I, I think, I suppose when I got drafted back in the end of 93, 94 was my first season, uh, we all had full-time jobs. You know, I worked at Puma full-time. Um uh, Kevin Sheedy actually started up AFL Sports Ready at the time, which was a traineeship company um, who I work for now. And they looked after the, the post-career prospects of players through traineeships. But then come 1997, all the players went full-time. And that's where, yeah, you, you definitely saw a, a different, I suppose, view of it where, you know, back in the day, Michael Tuck was a, a plumber. So he was skilled. So he always had a career to go to post-football. Um, but now guys get drafted at 18 and they're a full-time footballer and athlete. So it's really important that they keep an eye on those other areas. So when they exit, whether it be three years after they start or, or 17 years, that they've got a, another career uh, post-football. I want to get into the footy talk. You were selected at pick 56 in the 93 AFL draft. Prior to the draft, were you confident of being picked up? Had you had any contact through any of the clubs that were, were keen on you at all? Mate, not at all, not at all, to be honest. Um, I, I always viewed myself as a bit of a, just a hard worker, not not that very talented at all. But, um, you know, I, I played 
Um, funnily enough, I played as a 15-year-old in the Richmond under-19s. That was back when the, the zones were around. So I came through as a 15-year-old. I played the last year of under-19s at Richmond with the likes of you know, Matthew Clark and Nick Duffy and Duncan Callaway and those types. Um, and at the end of that year, it was actually um, Cameron Schwab's always said that they had a long discussion whether or not I'd be the 52, 52nd um, player listed once the under-19s got abolished with Richmond, but they chose not to, to select me. So I went back to Eastern Rangers in the under-18 comp, which had just started up, and my coach there was Chris Connolly. Um, had two good years, um, you know, at Eastern Rangers. Ended up in a best and fairest in the second year, but but no clubs had contacted me to 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 draft me. I missed out on the rep rep teams and and the like. Um, but it was probably a couple of days before the draft. Hawthorne actually came out to my house and met with mum and dad. It was the only contact I had with the club and they just said, you know, there's there's a hundred names on our list and you're one, but you know, who knows what's going to happen. And and on draft day I actually was sitting with two mates um, who were both highly touted draftable players. They'd been contacted by 15 of the clubs and I'd only been contacted by one and I was the only one that got drafted out of the three of them. So oh, really that was that was pretty pretty um, yeah it was like a it was a, a different type of uh, mood in the room that day but they they went on to play supplementary list with teams and and had good careers in the VFL. I'm really interested because you said you played under 19s and then you played with the Eastern Rangers in the under 18. So that would have been the very start of the I guess it was at the VSFL or however they or TAC yep. Cup. I think it was something different when you first started. But what was that like to be a part of in the early days? Mate, I loved it. I loved it. I mean, I was I was. 16, 17, um, you know, I was just finishing school in my, in my second year, um, you know, just hanging out with mates, going to training, having a, that little bit of professional sport in your life. And I was, I was always very diligent in my training, so I worked hard. And But, but I've got some mates that are still my very close mates now from, from those Eastern Rangers days. And, um, like, I look back really fondly of those, those times. You were picked up by Hawthorne, and we know they were such a powerhouse club, you know, especially during their reign of the 80s where they won some flags and they won 91 as well. What can you remember of your day one of pre-season? You know, were you nervous? Were you starstruck because there were some big names still running around? Or was it just a, a yeah, you just felt normal? I, I certainly didn't feel normal. Um, I remember getting called in and um, I was there to meet some other drafted players, which was... Um, you know, Angelo Leckis and Shannon Gibson back in those days and Luke McCabe was our top pick that year. Um, and I remember walking in, uh, I was by myself, I felt that lonely, but it was a day where not all the players were in, but the, I opened up the, the doors to the gymnasium, um, no one had met me outside, I walked in and, and Shane Crawford was there getting a drink because he was running on a treadmill and, um, and Crawford introduced himself to me and to this day, of course, one of my best mates. And um, so that was a great introduction to to the uh, the football club. But as far as the pre-season goes, I think looking back now, um, you know, walking into a club that was that had the likes of Johnny Platten, Benny Allen, Darren Jarman, Dunstall, Langford, you know, Pritchard, Collins, it was pretty daunting. Um, and I learned back there then that the only way you could get respect was basically to train hard. So that's what I, 
I put my head down to do, but it was definitely one of those years where you don't touch the bench press until Jason Dunstall's finished with it, and then you can get on there. So, whereas I think they're a bit more accommodating and welcoming now. What was Dunstall bench pressing? Was he bench pressing something of uh, high quality, or and, you know, and how did you compare? Well, I was never a great bench presser. I reckon I only ever got up about 105. But back in those days, yeah, Bungo was one of those ones that could. I think press about 160 maybe from yeah, memory. Right. And I think later in my career and, and probably more, um, you know, my peers like, you know, Daniel Chicken, Ben Dixon and those types of guys were the, the big the big lifters and they were always up near 150, 155 from memory. Well, that doesn't surprise me, Raiden, because they're sort of the calendar guys too, aren't they, that always feature in the calendars? <laughs> well, absolutely, yeah. So I certainly wasn't one of those. So I, I just did what I needed to do. <laughs> Hey, mate, you really, I guess you attracted some immediate attention in your first season in that pre-season game when, I guess, ex-Hawthorne player, champion, Dermot Brereton, stomped on your head in a practice match and then he later received seven weeks suspension. I guess a real big initiation to you playing AFL footy in that, I guess it's only pre-season, but what do you remember of the incident? Yeah, it was one of those things, I suppose. I look back now and I didn't realise how big a incident it was. Um... And but my my memory and I and I suppose my memory might be fading a little bit, but um, it was one of those unique situations where it was a it was a practice match on Glenfrey Road. Um, it was a practice match that was more for the younger players to play in. Mm. Um, but Dermot had come. It was the first time Dermot had been back to Glenfrey Road since um, his departure. And I think from memory, there might have even been one year. Was there one year that he sat out from football from the end of 92 to this coming back to Sydney? But I'm not quite sure. I can't quite remember. But but um, but anyway, we played in that game. And um, from, from speaking to Dermot and hearing him speak about the incident over the years, he's always said that um, there was a couple of young kids that were just mouthing him that day and he just thought, you know what, I've, I've bled for this club and I've done a lot for this club. Don't be little smart asses to me. And, and it, as it goes, he's always said that um, I was at the wrong, the wrong player in the wrong place at the wrong time and he, he got me and um, I suppose what wasn't really reported was um, when I hit the ground, like I didn't feel anything. Um, I was actually knocked out because I, my, my recollection was more... When I got up to run off, I actually fell over again, and I was, I was, um, I was, yeah, sort of like I wasn't with it, and um, I thought nothing more of it until I was driving home, and I started getting calls from the club to say, you know, there's been an incident. They've picked up on the camera, and the footy club were brilliant. They they shielded me from the whole the whole incident. I I didn't have to speak to anyone, even though I was sort of. It may have even been front page, back page. I, I can't remember, but yeah. it was pretty big at the time. But not once was I ever put in front of a, a camera crew to talk about the incident. So they really protected me. And I suppose the only other thing my my from my memory of the incident was when I went to um, the tribunal, um, I was just honest. And I, I remember saying I, I didn't feel anything. I had no marks on my face. I had nothing, you know. And then they accused me of lying and they said almost that player's code of, of not giving in another player. And then they started speaking about potential suspensions for players that were, were lying to the, to, the, um, to the tribunal. So I always remember just saying, you know, I, I honestly couldn't remember because as soon as he hit me, um, 
Like I, I was I was knocked out for that split second. Yeah, right. There you go. And I guess for a young bloke, first season and, you know, wanting to do the right thing and so forth, that would have been a bit of a, a nerve-wracking uh, experience as well. Yeah, it was. But as I said, I, I think they protected me from it. So, um, you know, I, I thought I think I just recovered from from uh, being sort of stunned a little bit and then got back to training in the next week. I, and to be honest, I can't even really recall the, the tribunal that much um, and what happened. So I think that, if anything, the football club did a great thing in protecting me from what the circus was about because of the name that was Dermot. Um, but, you know, I, like, I, I get along really well with Dermot. I've seen him over the years and we cross paths still at past player events and, and bits and pieces. So, like, you know, people often say, oh, do you feel anything towards him? I think Dermot's a brilliant guy that would, you know, he would do anything for me and, and any other Hawthorne player of the past as well. So he's a, he's a ripper. Did he ever give you a call or anything like that just to say sorry or did you talk about it later on you know, down the track, you know, years later and speak about no, it? No, he didn't and I, I don't think he needed to. Um, so, so no, he didn't is, is the short answer. But there was a time where he and I were at a function at the MCG. Jeez, I, I, I will get my timelines wrong here, but it was post my career. It was actually when the sling tackle become a, a a part of the, the the conversation around the AFL. And I reckon it was a an incident with maybe Jack Trengrove okay. of Melbourne. There was an incident on the – and they started talking about the sling tackle and suspensions. And I happened to be at this function at the MCG with Dermot um, the week that they were talking about that as an incident. And we just spoke about um, how sometimes you've got the – you've got the duty, the duty of care in a tackle. If you know you've got someone pinned and you know they're at their, at, the, at your mercy, you should have a responsibility not to go through with a hard tackle. And he said, the day I got you, I, kn- I knew I had you. Like I could do whatever I wanted with you. I could, you know, lift you off the ground and, and pile you into the ground if I wanted to hurt you. So that's the only the time we've sort of really spoken about it. But, yeah, as I said, like I don't think there's any need to. I want to ask you about your first season and obviously your debut game. Um, you played against North Melbourne. It was a big loss, but you had a great day out, you know, 17 disposals. What was your recollections from from the day? And I guess a second part of that question is that, you know, you played 18 games that season as well. You must have surprised yourself on, on how well you adapted to the top level in your first year. Yeah, I'm not sure if I adapted and I, I think I was just um, maybe a little bit more um, physically ready to play football. Even though I was 18, I was sort of, I was, you know, I was, I was developed enough to be able to, to take it on. I suppose that's, that was just the way I liked to play, to play football was to, to have a bit of a go. But as far as playing 18 games, it was great, but I don't reckon my form really suggested it. I reckon it was almost an, an indication that, the, the football club was going through a transition of the old school and, and probably just some younger players coming in. And but my, my recollection of, of playing that first game, I, I remember I had two good good first rounds in the, in the reserves. Didn't expect at all to be um, selected in the seniors. Um, but I remember on the Tuesday night, Peter Knights, who's just a, you know one of my a great mentor and a, a great coach and a great friend of mine. Um, he was the senior coach and he grabbed me at training and he pulled me across and he said, listen, um, and I can still still just think of it now and I can feel the emotions of of him saying, now, listen, I'm, you're going to play your first game this week. And I remember just thinking, oh, my God, all the, you know, the tingles and, 
And they just said, um, he said, now, I don't want you to tell anyone, but you can go home and tell mum and dad. So that that's that's my recollection of that. And then my, on game day, because it was a Friday night football, it was like the biggest the biggest time, you know, yeah. Friday night football on, on debuting. And I remember just being at the end of the race, um, as all the seniors would do, watching the reserves play, and leaning there and looking around at sort of some of these greats in the game, thinking, what, what, where has this all come from? Like, why am I here right now? It happened so quick. Um, and then come game day, like what was probably the best thing for me was they selected me on the ground. So back then it was almost like, you know, you, you, you get selected on the bench. Mm. To be out there for the first bounce was almost, they took away a bit of nerves as well. Um and I just remember in the first passage of play or one of the first passages of play, um, I remember um, I got a hand pass received off the halfback flank and I kicked it forward to um, to Paul Deere and Paul Deere sort of competed for the ball at, at the uh, the top of the, the 50 and it was crumbed by Glenn Nugent. I'm not sure if you remember, remember yeah, Glenn Nugent. Nugent. Yep. And from a left footer, from about 45, he kicked the opening goal of the game. And I remember turning around and one of my, my, um, other, I suppose the guys I really looked up to in, in the squad at that time was Darren Pritchard and Pritch just running straight at me and like almost barreling me over saying, well done. And like, I was just thinking, how good is this? And then we end up, <laughs> we end up losing the game by 127 points after that. So um, that was sort of my recollection of, of, of my first game. Can I just ask you, you know, for a young bloke that's trained with, the, you know, the names of uh, Pritchard and, and Darren Jarman and Dunstall and Platten and all these guys, but actually to be on the ground and play with them in, a, in an AFL match, is that, did you feel intimidated or, you know, did it ta- get a little bit to take, to get used to, to, to be running around, you know, and kicking to, to you know, a, a Pritchard on the wing or a Dunstall inside 450? Yeah, it is. And I suppose throughout my whole career, like I, I base my my whole purpose on a footy field of not being the main person, not being the skillful one, not being, but I thought all I could add was, um, you know, effort and determination and trying to chase and tackle and do all those hard things. So I think when when that was my mindset and that's something that I would, you know, almost back myself into being okay at, it took away the ability of, you know, coming through the junior ranks as some sort of skillful goal-kicking wingman and having to kick three goals or deliver the ball to to Dunstall. So um, I think just my whole career was that. Like, I was never talented. I never felt the pressure that I had to win games. I just was a role player. And, and so when it goes out there, as much as it sounds sort of a bit silly, I, that's what I was okay at was effort, and and that's all I had to do. You had two really strong opening years to your career and, you know, you played quite a few games. Would it be fair to say the next couple of years were a little bit harder due to injuries? And I guess a new senior coach coming in and Ken Judge, it was just harder to get a game, you know, probably that next couple of years after your first two. Yeah, it is. And I think it's just an indication of, um, you know, different coaches' perspectives on players. Um, you know, when Judgey first got there, um, you know, I remember all the, the players had an interview with him and he was really complimentary of what I've done and he watched me and he said, you know, I like guys who train hard and play hard and keep it simple and all those sort of things. So that was that was um, a good introduction, I suppose, to Judgey. And then I, I actually, day I played round one under Judgey, but from that point, 
there, I suppose other players were just selected a, ahead of me. Um, I suppose I look back now, my form was still good. You know, I was still, you know, other than that first year, I think where I played maybe, I can't remember, maybe seven or so games in, in Judge's first year. Every other year I was still playing 10 or 12 games. Yeah. But I did really, I did feel like I was a player that was, um, could be relied upon if there was an injury to come in and perform, but then I'd be straight out again once that other player had, had um, recovered from his injury. So it, it did get to a point where I thought my form and going off my my first two years, I should be playing more more senior football. Um, and, you know, I even had a couple of assistant coaches at the time as well pull me aside and say, listen, I reckon if you really want to play, you've got to go elsewhere because you'll always be that, that parts player for us. Um, but then, you know, I, I, I was living with Croft at the time as well, and Croft knew the hard work I was putting into my training, and and he was a massive support in saying, you know, stick it out. And in the end, um, you know, one, I couldn't really go anywhere else because by that stage I'd had four years of, you know, only playing 50% of games. I wasn't really a high commodity on, on other people's radars. So... It was really funny that come the transition from Judgy to Schwabby, Schwabby had the same um, meeting with me where he basically said, I'll delist you unless you didn't have a contract in place. So I was lucky in his first year, I had one year to go of a contract and they honoured that contract. Um, and in the pre-season, I remember um, training really hard and I thought I was going okay and um performing well in the practice match. I thought I did enough to be selected for round one. And I remember walking into the team meeting and, and looking up on the board thinking, you know, maybe a halfback role or maybe a back pocket role. And my name wasn't there. And I thought, oh, geez, I'm starting on the bench. It's not, that's not great. And I looked at the bench and my name was on the bench and I was in an emergency and I was, I was really disappointed. And the worst thing I could do that round one is I went and played reserves that week and actually got tagged by Ryan Pagan at Punt Road. And I remember it was the worst game of footy I've ever played and I did not get a touch. And I thought, there's my, there goes my, you know, my selection for round two. And so I was part of the squad for round two. And, um, and uh, when I went into that same team meeting round two, I looked up looking for the bench spot. Hopefully I may have got on the bench and I wasn't on the bench. So I looked down the emergencies wasn't on the emergency as I look up, I was in the back pocket thinking, geez, there you go. So in the end, I played the remainder of those those games for the whole year. And I you know, I think I come sixth in the BNF at the end of that year. And the next four years under under Schwabby, I, I hardly missed a game and, and we made a few finals, final series and, and it was really good. So what was it about Schwabby that sort of I guess turned your game around? Was it just that change of role? Was it the way he wanted you to go about it? Was it you that probably uh, you know, of course it was going to be you that put in the hard work and so forth. But what was it the thing that sort of, I guess, changed the the previous two years with under Judgy to, to a Schwabby? Uh, once again, I think it's just, it's just selection of coaches, uh, I suppose, because nothing had really changed in, in my form. As I said, I was, I was pretty consistent because I was just an effort player. Like I didn't have to kick a hundred goals or whatever. So, um, you know, looking back, even when I was playing reserves under under Judgy, I was still as a midfielder. Even though I was playing uh, more of a defensive role than seniors, I was I was averaging you know thirty touches a game as a midfielder in the two. So my form was always good. It was just the opportunity. I think a lot of people say that it's the opportunity. So 
I'm really grateful that, you know, the running coach, Bowden Babacek, I was doing a lot of work with Bowden, with, with Crawford and another couple of, of good mates of mine that we were right into our fitness before fitness become a really big thing. And I think, I think Baba was a real um, catalyst to in, in really pumping up to Schwabby, my, my athletic traits. And I suppose, I mean, I'm not, I'm not naturally gifted, but um, the, he certainly pumped up that if there was any player that was elite in the opposition team, that I was someone that I, I could definitely run with them and, and do a job on. So there was a couple of people in my corner, and I suppose at the end of the day, it just turned around. I want to go back, just go back a few years before Schwabby took over. Uh, there was merger talks between the D's and also the Hawks, and I, got, I guess you know I got quite close from a, from an outsider's point of view, maybe a little bit different inside. But you know, there's some really strong talks here. What was it like to be part of that time when those murmurs and talks were occurring from a player's point of view? I was probably too young to really understand the the, the you know, how big a story it was going to be. Um, I suppose you just expect things to keep rolling on and the footy club to exist. And but that that night with Don Scott, you know, got the jumper and and all those sort of things. And, and especially in the last round with Chris Langford, who was a you know a senior player and a and the captain of the club, maybe even at that year, taking his jumper off, leaving the ground. You knew that. This was pretty big and the emotions of the club and the history of the club were, I suppose, under in jeopardy. So, but I suppose as far as that goes, there was always this um, upstairs and downstairs um, view of the football club. You know, we were just downstairs footballers. We were there to train. Then you got the upstairs administration that would run the club. And, you know, not that I'm dumb, but I was sort of probably not really <laughs> – I didn't really – sort of grasp on, you know, this is a business and here, you know, people are, you know, the clubs aren't making money, they need to merge and and what it all meant. Um, but now upon reflection, you look at, you know, the the, the stance that Ian Dicker took and, and Don Scott and, and others that were heavily involved to keep the football club alive, it's it's something that, um, you know, will be etched into the, the history books that it was a significant moment and, and you look on, you look to what they've gone on to do as a football club now, and and it's something to so to be so proud of being a past player. Even though you sort of said, you know, you didn't sort of really get it with what was going on, did, was there any sort of feeling that it could have occurred? Was it was it that close, or was it still quite far away from from what you understand? Yeah, no, no, yeah, exactly what I, I suppose I said before is I didn't feel that. I, I felt like, how could this happen? And and it's not going to happen. So it was quite surreal that we, we can't next year or you know, in, the, in the coming years come back with a merged club. But I suppose my, my recollection was trying to work out how what, what that means as far as list sizes go. Yeah. So I, I suppose I went into a bit of a self-preservation mode thinking, shit, you got, you got two, two lots of 52 players or whatever on the list back then, but we're going to merge into one team. Where do I find myself? Am I, am I going to be a player again? So that sounds, I suppose, a bit selfish, but that's that was my recollection back then was a bit more survival for me. But now, looking back, knowing that the football club's a lot bigger than individuals, the stance that those people took in the past players and the presidents and the Ian Dickers and those types, you realise that it means more than those players just passing through in, a, in an individual contract. Your final season was in 2004, obviously, you know, 10 or 11 seasons after you made your debut. Did you go out on your terms or was a hard decision 
made by the footy club to say, listen, um, we, we're looking at that next direction. Um, you know, uh, you know, you're not in our future plans. How did that all unfold for you? Yeah, I think I was even under the pump at the end of 2003. Like I started, um, you know, my form wasn't as good. Um, I think I was pretty lucky to get another contract in 2004. So um, once again, I thought my form was okay, but I I remember thinking, you know, the reality is we're, we're not going too well as a football club in that season. You know, Schwabby obviously got the arse later on and Donald McDonald took over and I hadn't played for a while and um, and I saw the writing on the wall and I remember there was a there was a group of us, you know, whether it was Mark Graham and Luke McCabe and Chris Barlow and and even guys that did survive like Ben Dixon and Angelo Leckis, you know, we were coming to the, you know, our late 20s and, and what do you do? And I just remember thinking, you know, I'm gone. My body is um, slowing down. It really happened quickly. And I knew that um, even if I wanted a contract in 2005, I wasn't going to get one. Mm. So I announced my retirement and and to hope to, um, to get the opportunity to play one more game in front of family and friends. So when Donald took over, um, you know, there was a bit of a push from the leadership group that, you know, we weren't going to make finals, all that sort of stuff. So he gave gave me an opportunity to to select one of the last two rounds to play a, a final game against. So I had, the, I had the ability to play my last game, the MCG, in front of family and friends, whereas some other players, some of the names that I mentioned before, they they took the opportunity to hopefully meet the new coach coming in and, and sit down and see where they sat. Um, and a lot of those guys never got offered a contract. There was a big wipeout anyway, and they never got that opportunity to to play the game. So, yeah, like I, I probably called it, but I knew that I knew the writing was on the wall. I was gone anyway. But to get one last game, um, I was wrapped just to be able to do that in front of family and friends. And I think to go out on your terms as well. And as you said, you did see the writing on the wall, but to go out on your terms and to call it, um, you know that. That must be a much nicer feeling than actually going rightio, Raiden. Um, yeah, you, we don't we don't see a part of our club for next year and, and years by, beyond. Yeah, absolutely. But I reckon I had that um, I had that feeling at the end of two thousand and three. So, um, and even going back to be honest, when I thought I was gone, when Schwabby had that that chat to me about um, not oh, honouring my one year contract when he took over. I caught up David Park in that year because, you know, I was never an academic. I, I did year 12 at a public school, got through okay, but football was my life. Um, but at that point I'd matured enough to think, you know, what am I going to do post-football? So I rang up David Park and who was a, a lecturer at, um, at Deakin University and I said, Parko, like I've got no background. I don't have a great enter score from back you know, in the ni- early 90s, but can you get me into a sports management course at Deakin? So he got, he was able to get me in as a mature age student in 2001. Um, I had my best year, as I mentioned before, in 2001, got to, you know, played most games after round one. And, um, and in the end, I suppose I signed a two or three-year contract after that year but I remember I stuck at my degree for the next five years or six years, I think it took me, because I, I had the scare back then. And I reckon even now, you look at some players that get delisted and they're lost. You know, sometimes getting 
talked about getting delisted but surviving for a year, you can have a bit of a it's nearly gone um, and prepare for life after. So that's why my passion in that space with AFL Sports really now and looking after players for life after is, um, is, is pretty strong with me. So did you have a connection with David Parkin or, you know, just to, to give him a call or was it just sort of knowing him through the AFL system? No. Well, remember Parko came down to Hawthorne under Schwabby as a almost a director of coaching role. Oh, yes, yes. So he was, he was involved with the club. Now, I can't yeah. quite put the, the years on it, but he was certainly around the club for a couple of years in that, in that role. And and even now as a as a – as a past player and a life member of the football club, whenever we have functions, I, you know, catch up with Parco um, and have a great chat with him and he's just a, one of the, a, a ripping guy. I'm going to give you a few names to um, share a sentence or a few words on, Raiden, as we uh, as we get near the end of our great chat here on the 90s Club Footy Podcast. Um, so whatever you want to say, you know, describe them, whether it's a sentence or, or a couple of words, but um, it's up to you. Jason Dunstall. Um, in, intimidating as a young person um, and in most recent years uh, a real empathetic and, and, and great, great fella um, who I've probably stayed in contact only very in very small parts through his friendship with Ben Dixon and those type of guys. So, But as a, as a young player coming in, very intimidating character. This bloke I'm going to ask you about just had a lot of party tricks, Darren Jarman. Well, Jars, I I, uh, I remember Jars as being a guy that I don't reckon I saw him do uh, any weights in his life and I don't reckon he did many runs and he would constantly just pre, pre-training, he was just kicking left and right foot and kicking the ball around the corner through doorways and all that. Um but then come come our first practice match, he'll get 35 touches and just knew where to get it. So I reckon I only played two years with Jars, but just a very highly skillful, skillful man. When you look back now, um, his heroics in the grand finals, unbelievable. Oh, I actually watched only probably a couple of months ago um, his when he was playing for Adelaide Crows. Did he kick five in the last? Quarter? Yeah, was that against St right? Kilda? Yeah, St Kilda. Yeah, like just freakish. And, and that's what he was like. I, I just remember either left or right foot at training, if he kicked it, wherever he kicked it, he he was placing the ball for you to know where to run to. So just very crafty and also an amazing hip and shoulder. Like had this, had that body almost like a Byron Pickett that was not quite really defined and cut but had this ability to just barrel you over with with great momentum and, and timing. Your housemate, you spent a lot of time with this fellow from uh, what you've said earlier, the great Shane Crawford. Yeah, just a, a professional before, you know, football become professional. I remember we had Thursdays off, but he would always get, um, there was a group of about five, six or seven of us that would go down the running track on our day off and do extra running with Baba. And, um, but, but, yeah, just one of those guys that I've never seen I suppose mentally tough. Um, I've never seen never seen him grimace at pain and be able to hide. Like even though he might be hurting in a run, he'll never show you. So he had this great ability to be able to work through the the pain. Um, and just a guy that was just um, extremely hard working on and off the field. Another bit of a tough nut that uh, played some good footy for the Hawks, Richie Vandenberg. 
Yeah, Vanders was, um, I suppose Vanders and I were a little bit similar. He was a better player than what I was and went on to be captain. But Vanders was uh, um, one of those guys that would be very opinionated around the club in a good way, in a leadership way. And I, I think that really came out in the transition from Schwabby to the judge in his role. But a guy that got drafted late but certainly got everything out of his ability. Um, and I think in the end... He actually um, elevated his position as just a good run with player to being a very, very good AFL player. And the last one, one of my favourites, he was a, a great player, just honest each each and every week, Darren Pritchard. Pritch, Pritch and Colo, Andy Collins were two, my two favourites. Colo, Colo took me under his wing along with Luke McCabe and almost wanted to establish us as that that hard sort of back pocket, ruthless sort of player. And Darren Pritchard was um, was one of those guys, highly skillful, great trainer, um, you know, good family man, good person, and someone that I really connected with. and And I still remember going back to the Jason Dunstall. There, I remember he's he's made many comments over the years that if he was leading out from full forward and Darren Jar Darren Pritchard had the ball in his hands, he'd be just licking his lips because he was just a great performer. So. Maybe he's got the accolades of how good he was, um, but maybe he should be elevated even more because he's a he's a he's a true legend. Have you got a favourite memory or a favourite particular memory or favourite game over your career, mate? Uh, without much warning on that, um, not really. I, I suppose the Port Adelaide game, uh, the the semi final over in Port when we played them and. And we beat them with um, Johnny Barker kicked the goal late in the game. So that would, would have been 2000 and that maybe that was 2001 to lead us into a prelim maybe. I can't even recall, mate, to be honest. But those sort of games were great. I, I still remember even the elimination final in my first year against North Melbourne where it was a drawn game in Waverley. Yeah. And um, went into overtime and then Wayne Carey just said, you know, clapped his hands together and said, rightio, let me just put on a show now, and he sort of won him the game in the in the overtime. So there are a couple of memories. Who's the the favourite character or character around the Hawthorne Footy Club during your time? Oh, uh, you know what I'm really proud of is there's a, there's a key group of players that um, we've remained really close since since um, we've all retired, and we've actually got a we have a club that we started called Club Seventeen, and. Club 17 is is made up of players that um, basically played any time between 1991 and 2008 that didn't win a premiership for Hawthorne. So right. we almost came into the football club after this golden era of the 80s and, and 1991. And then as soon as we all left in sort of 2004, 2005, they've gone on to win premierships from 2008 onwards. So really close with um, you know, Nick Holland and Daniel Harford and Mark Graham and and Ben Dixon and, and those types. So we try to do a, a yearly catch up with those guys, but they're all got their they they've all got their good points and their flaws, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> who was your hardest opponent? Obviously, because you spent a bit of time in the back line. Who was the hardest one that you had to play on? Uh yeah, I was, I was thrown into it a bit early, I suppose, because I, I would have to tag players like um, Greg Williams and and Gary Hocking and all that as a young player. Um, I remember, you know, Diesel Williams was was ruthless and hard. Um, Gary Hocking was was would also really work hard across the ground, but sort of respectful. And but my memory of of a really good player from those 
from that that time that um, I actually worked a bit with post football as well was was Craig Lambert and you know in his day Lambo was a was an elite an elite player uh, you know Victorian representative and I just remember tagging him when he was playing at Brisbane and um, and back then I was only young I was in my my first or second year. And I remember he he went to to get out of a, a stoppage, and I grabbed his his jumper and I pulled him back, and he turned around and whacked me in the guts, and he called me by my nickname, and I didn't know he wouldn't even know who I was. He goes, "Radar, don't cheat." He said, "Play as close as you want, but don't cheat," and and it always stuck with me. So after that, like I, I sort of try to play on my merits a little bit, and and upon reflection now, I wish I cheated a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, mate, can I just ask, ask you, why was the 90s such a great era of football to be playing in? What, what was it about the 90s that just made it, the footy so great? Yeah, I, well, I look back with fond memories and, and whether or not the scrutiny that the players are under now and, and you know, the, I suppose the, the, um, the coverage they, they get in media and, and even mobile phones, every, every person out in the street essentially is a journalist because... You know, one one photo or one video can be sent to anyone. And it's a story. So, like, I, I loved I loved my transition from um, part time player in the in the early nineties, where you had to work. You're getting to the football club at six a.m., do your weights, go to go to work all day, and then come back at five thirty at night and train at night. But you could also you know, have a good night on the on the beers on the Saturday after a game. That's what I loved, but there was also that element of oh, you want to keep really fit, but your diet and all that probably didn't quite suggest that that's what you're trying to do on a Saturday night. <laughs> I, I loved it. I loved the, the balance. Um, the players now, they're rewarded a lot better, you know, um, with their contract sizes and all that, but the scrutiny they're under and the pressure is, is immense. So I loved it that there was a balance of, of, of keeping your, your normal life, but also having an element of being an elite athlete as well. And my last question, mate, is do you follow the Hawks still with great interest? I do. I Absolutely. Um, do I have a like a, a real passion to go to the, the games every week? Probably not. Um, only because I've got kids now that I've got different sports and different commitments. But absolutely, I watch them, you know, whenever they're on tally and I watch a lot of games, but probably not in, in their entirety. I just watch bits and pieces and... Um, but I'm still heavily involved with the, the football club. I, I sit on a, an awards committee and a life members committee um, there. So I, I love the club. Um, I look at what I've got, um, you know, what, what that, that opportunity gave me to be part of the football club um, and being the family club. It's, it's one of those things that the people you, you cross in your journey throughout the club become lifelong friends. So, um, yeah, like I, I, I love it. I love the footy club. Raiden Tallis, thank you for joining me on the 90s Club Footy Podcast. I really appreciate your honesty and sharing your stories and journey of your time at the Hawks. It's been a, a great chat, mate. Oh, good on you, mate. Hopefully that wasn't too boring for your listeners. <laughs> but uh, no, it's great to be on there, Trent. Thanks for, um, thanks for the invite. That's the end of episode 17. If you've missed any previous episodes, you can catch them all on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We're on all the social media platforms, so drop us a line on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter on any particular episode you've enjoyed or a guest that you would love to listen to. 
next week we catch up with a former Tiger whose family had a strong connection with the club. 